Disc Four. Rosalind, still with her right arm round Petra, started homewards at a walk. I collected the dead pony's saddle and bridle, pulled the arrows out of the creature, and followed them. They put Petra to bed when I brought her in. During the late afternoon and early evening, the disturbance she was making fluctuated from time to time, but it kept up naggingly until almost nine o'clock, when it diminished steeply and disappeared. Thank goodness for that, she's gone to sleep at last. Came from one of the others. Who was that man Skinner? Rosalind and I inquired anxiously and simultaneously. Sally answered, "He's fairly new here. My father knows him. He has a farm bordering on the woods near where you were. It was just bad luck his seeing us, and of course he wondered why we were making for the trees at a gallop. He seemed very suspicious. Why?" asked Rosalind. "Does he know anything about thought shapes?" I didn't think any of them did. He can't make them or receive them himself. I tried him hard. Sally told her. Michael's distinctive pattern came in, inquiring what it was all about. We explained. He commented, "Some of them do have an idea that something of the kind may be possible, but only very roughly of the kind, a sort of emotional transfer of mental impressions. They call it telepathy. At least those who believe in it do." Most of them are pretty doubtful whether it exists at all. Do they think it's deviational? Those who do believe it exists, I mean, I asked. Oh, it's difficult to say. I don't know that the question has ever been straightly put, but academically, there's the point that since God is able to read men's minds, the true image ought to be able to do so too. It might be argued that it is a power that men have temporarily lost as a punishment, part of tribulation. But I'd not like to risk myself on that argument in front of a tribunal. This man had the air of smelling a rat, Rosalind told him. Has anybody else been inquisitive? They all gave her a no to that. Good, she replied. But we must be careful this doesn't happen again. David will have to explain to Petra in words and try to teach her to use some self-control. If this distress of hers does occur, you must all of you ignore it, or anyway not answer it. Just leave it to David and me. If it is compulsive, like it was the first time, whoever reaches her first will have to try to make her unconscious somehow. And the moment the compulsion breaks, you must turn back and cover up as best you can. We have to make sure we're not drawn together into a group again. We could easily be a lot less lucky than we were today. Does everybody understand and agree? Their assents came in. Then presently, the rest of them withdrew. Leaving Rosalind and me to discuss how I could best tackle Petra. I woke early the next morning, and the first thing I was aware of was Petra's distress once more. But it was different in quality now. Her alarm had quite subsided, but given way to a lament for the dead pony. Nor did it have anything like the intensity of the previous day. I tried to make contact with her. And though she did not understand, there was a perceptible check and a trace of puzzlement for some seconds. I got out of bed and went along to her room. She was glad to have company. The distress pattern faded a lot as we chatted. Before I left, I promised to take her fishing that afternoon. It's not at all easy to explain in words how one can make intelligible thought shapes. All of us had first found out for ourselves. A very crude fumbling to begin with, but then more skilful when we had discovered one another and begun to learn by practice.
With Petra, it was different. Already, at six and a half, she had had a power of projection in a different class from ours and quite overwhelming, but without realisation, and therefore with no control whatever. I did my best to explain to her that even at her present age of almost eight, the necessity of putting it in words that were simple enough presented a difficulty. After an hour of trying to make it clear to her while we sat on the river bank watching our floats, I still had not got anywhere much, and she was growing too bored to try to understand what I said. Another kind of approach seemed to be required. Let's play a game, I suggested. You shut your eyes, keep them shut tight, and pretend you're looking down a deep, deep well. There's nothing but dark to see, right? Yes, she said, eyelids tightly clenched. Good. Now don't think of anything at all except how dark it is and how far, far away the bottom is. Just think of that, but look at the dark. Understand that? Yes, she said again. Now watch, I told her. I thought a rabbit for her and made it twitch its nose. She chuckled. Well, that was one good thing. At least it made sure that she could receive. I abolished the rabbit and thought a puppy, then some chickens and then a horse and a cart. After a minute or two, she opened her eyes and looked bewildered. Where are they? she asked, looking round. They aren't anywhere. They would just think things, I told her. That's the game. Now I'll shut my eyes too. We'll both look down the well and think of nothing but how dark it is. Then it's your turn to think a picture at the bottom of the well so that I can see it. I've played my part conscientiously and opened my mind to its most sensitive. That was a mistake. There was a flash and a glare and a general impression that I had been struck by a thunderbolt. I staggered in a mental daze with no idea what her picture had been. The others came in, protesting bitterly. I explained what was going on. Well, for heaven's sake, be careful and don't let her do it again. I damn near put an axe through my foot, came aggrievedly from Michael. I've scalded my hand with the kettle, from Catherine. Lull her, soothe her down somehow, advised Rosalind. She isn't unsoothed, she's perfectly tranquil. That seems to be just the way it is with her, I told them. Maybe, but it's a way it can't stay, Michael answered. She must cut it down. I know, I'm doing my best. Perhaps you've got some ideas on how to tackle it, I suggested. Well, next time, warn us before she tries, Rosalind told me. I pulled myself together and turned my attention to Petra again. You're too rough, I said. This time, make a little think picture. A really little one, ever so far away, in soft, pretty colours. Do it slowly and gently, as if you were making it out of cobwebs. Petra nodded and closed her eyes again. Here it comes, I warned the others, and waited, wishing it were the kind of thing one could take cover from. It was not much worse than a minor explosion this time. It was dazzling, but I did manage to catch the shape of it. A fish, I said, a fish with a droopy tail. Petra chuckled delightedly. Undoubtedly a fish came from Michael. You're doing fine. All you want to do now is cut her down to about one percent of the power in that last one before she burns our brains out. Now you show me, 
demanded Petra, and the lesson proceeded. The following afternoon we had another session. It was a rather violent and exhausting business, but there was progress. Petra was beginning to grasp the idea of forming thought shapes in a childish way, as was only to be expected, but frequently recognisable in spite of distortions. The main trouble still was to keep the strength down. When she became excited, one was almost stunned by the impact. The rest complained that they could get no work done while we were at it. It was like trying to ignore sudden hammer-bangs inside one's head. Towards the end of the lesson, I told Petra, Now, I'm going to tell Rosalind to give you a think-picture. Just shut your eyes like before. Where's Rosalind? she asked, looking round. She's not here, but that doesn't matter with think-pictures. Now, look at the dark and think of nothing. And you others, I added mentally for the benefit of the rest, just lay off, will you? Keep it all clear for Rosalind, and don't interrupt. Go ahead, Rosalind, strong and clear. We sat, silent and receptive. Rosalind made a pond with reeds round it. She put in several ducks, friendly, humorous-looking ducks of various colours. They swam a kind of ballet, except for one chunky, earnestly trying duck who was always a little late and a little wrong. Petra loved it. She gurgled with enjoyment. Then, abruptly, she projected her delight. It wiped out the whole thing and dazed us all again. It was wearing for everyone, but her progress was encouraging. In the fourth lesson, she learned the trick of clearing one's mind without closing one's eyes, which was quite a step. By the end of the week, we were really getting on. Her thought shapes were still crude and unstable, but they would improve with practice. Her reception of simple forms was good, though as yet she could catch little of our projections to one another. Too difficult to see all at once and too quick, she said. But I can tell whether it's you or Rosalind or Michael or Sally doing it, but going so fast it gets muddled. The other ones are much more muddled, though. What other ones? Catherine and Mark? I asked her. Oh, no, I can tell them. It's the other, other ones. The longer way away ones, she said impatiently. I decided to take it calmly. I don't think I know them. Who are they? I don't know, she said. Can't you hear them? They're over there, but a long, long way. She pointed to the southwest. I thought that over for a few moments. Are they there now? I asked. Yes, but not much, she said. I tried my best to detect anything and failed. Suppose you try to copy for me what you're getting from them, I suggested. She tried. There was something there, and with a quality in it which none of us had. It was not comprehensible, and it was very blurred, possibly, I thought, because Petra was trying to relay something she could not understand herself. I could make nothing of it and call Rosalind in, but she could do no better. Petra was evidently finding it an effort, so after a few minutes we decided to let it rest for the present. In spite of Petra's continued propensity to slip at any moment into what, in terms of sound, would be a deafening bellow, we all felt a proprietorial pride in her progress. There was a sense of excitement, too, rather as if we had discovered an unknown who we knew was destined to become a great singer, only it was something more important than that. This, Michael said, is going to be very interesting indeed, provided she doesn't break us all up before she gets control of it.
At supper, some ten days after the loss of Petra's pony, Uncle Axel asked me to come and give him a hand with truing up a wheel while there was still light enough. Superficially, the request was casual, but there was something in his eye which made me agree without hesitation. I followed him out. We went over behind the rick where we should neither be seen nor overheard. He put a straw between his teeth and looked at me seriously. You've been careless, Davy boy," he asked. There are plenty of ways of being careless, but only one he'd ask me about with the manner he was using. I don't think so," I told him. "One of the others, maybe," he suggested. Again, I did not think so. "Hmm," he grunted. "Then why would you say has Joe Darley been asking questions about you? Any idea?" I had no idea why, and told him so. He shook his head. "I don't like it, boy." Just me or the others as well? I asked. You and Rosalind Morton. Oh, I said uneasily. Still, if it's only Joe Darley, could it be he's heard a rumour about us and is out to do a bit of scandal raising? Might be. Uncle Axel agreed, but reservedly. On the other hand, Joe is a fellow that the inspector has used before now, and he wants a few inquiries made on the quiet. I don't like it. I did not care for it either, but he had not approached either of us directly, and I did not see where else he was going to get any incriminating information. There was, I pointed out, nothing he could pin on us that brought us within any category of the scheduled deviations. Uncle Axel shook his head. Those lists are inclusive, not exclusive, he said. You can't schedule all the million things that may happen; only the more frequent ones. There have to be test cases for new ones when they crop up. It's part of the inspector's job to keep watch and call an inquiry if the information he gets seems to warrant it. We've thought about what might happen. I told him, if there should be any questions, they'll not be sure what they're looking for. All we'll have to do is act bewildered, just as a norm would be. If Joe or anybody has anything, it can't be more than suspicion, no solid evidence. He did not seem reassured. There's Rachel," he suggested. "She was pretty much knocked by her sister's suicide. Do you think she? No," I said confidently. Quite apart from the fact that she couldn't do it without involving herself, we should have known if she were hiding anything. Well then, there's young Petra," he said. I stared at him. "How did you know about Petra?" I asked. "I never told you." He nodded in a satisfied way. "So she is." I reckon so. How did you find out? I repeated anxiously, wondering who else might have had a similar idea. Did she tell you? Oh no, I kind of came across it. He paused, then he added, "Indirectly, it came from Anne. I told you it was a bad thing to let her marry that fellow. There's a type of woman who isn't content until she's made herself some man's slave and doormat, put herself completely in his power." That's the kind she was. You're not. You don't mean she told Alan about herself? I protested. She did. He nodded. She did more than that. She told him about all of you. I stared at him incredulously. You can't be sure of that, Uncle Axel. I am, Davy boy. Maybe she didn't intend to. Maybe it was only herself she told him about, being the kind who can't keep secrets in bed. And maybe he had to beat the names of the rest of you out of her, but he knew all right. 
He knew. But even if he did, how did you know he knew? I asked with rising anxiety. He added reminiscently. A while ago, there used to be a dive down on the waterfront in Rigo. It was run by a fellow called Grouth, and very profitably too. He had a staff of three girls and two men, and they did as he said, just as he said. If he'd liked to tell what he knew, one of the men would have been strung up for mutiny on the high seas and two of the girls for murder. I don't know what the others had done, but he had the lot of them cold. It was as neat a set-up for blackmail as you could find. If the men got any tips, he had them. He saw to it that the girls were nice to the sailors who used the place, and whatever they got out of the sailors, he had to. I used to see the way he treated them, and the expression on his face when he watched them, kind of gloating because he'd got them, and he knew it, and they knew it. He'd only got a frown, and they danced. Uncle Axel paused reflectively. You'd never think you'd come across just that expression on a man's face again in Wacknook Church of all places, would you? It made me feel a bit queer when I did. But there it was. It was on his face while he studied first Rosalind, then Rachel, then you, then young Petra. He wasn't interested in anybody else. Just the four of you. You could have been mistaken, just an expression, I said. Not that expression. Oh, no. I knew that expression. It jerked me right back to the dive in Rigo. Besides, if I wasn't right, how do I come to know about Petra? What did you do? I came home and thought a bit about Grouth and what a comfortable life he'd been able to lead and about one or two other things. Then I put a new string on my bow. So it was you, I exclaimed. It was the only thing to do, Davy. Of course, I knew Anne would reckon it was one of you that had done it, but she couldn't denounce you without giving herself away and her sister too. There was a risk there, but I had to take it. There certainly was a risk, and it nearly didn't come off, I said, and told him about the letter that Anne had left for the inspector. He shook his head. I hadn't reckoned she'd go as far as that, poor girl, he said. All the same, it had to be done, and quickly. Alan wasn't a fool. He'd see to it that he was covered. Before he actually began on you, he'd have had a written deposition somewhere to be opened in the event of his death, and he'd see that you knew about it too. It'd have been a pretty nasty situation for all of you. The more I considered it, the more I realized how nasty it could have been. You took a big risk for us yourself, Uncle Axel, I told him. He shrugged. Very little risk for me against a great deal for you, he said. Presently, we came back to the matter in hand. But these inquiries can't have anything to do with Alan. That was weeks ago, I pointed out. What's more, it's not the kind of information Alan would share with anyone if he'd wanted to cash in on it, agreed Uncle Axel. There's one thing, he went on. They can't know much or they'd have called an inquiry already, and they'll have to be pretty damn sure of themselves before they do call one. The inspector isn't going to put himself in a weak spot with your father if he can help it, nor with Angus Morton either, for the matter of that. But that still doesn't get us any nearer to knowing what started it. I was pressed back again into thinking it must have something to do with the affair of Petra's pony. Uncle Axel knew of its death, of course, but not much more. 
It would have involved telling him about Petra herself, and we had had a tacit understanding that the less he knew about us, the less he would have to hide in case of trouble. However, now that he did know about Petra, I described the event more fully. It did not look to us to be a likely source, but for lack of any other lead, he made a note of the man's name. Jerome Skinner, he repeated, not very hopefully. Very well. I'll see if I can find out anything about him. We all conferred that night, but inconclusively. Michael put it. Well, if you and Rosalind are quite satisfied that there's been nothing to start suspicion in your district, then I don't see that it can be traceable to anybody but that man in the forest. He used a thought shape rather than bothering to spell out Jerome Skinner in letter forms. If he is the source, then he must have put his suspicions before the inspector in this district who will have handed it on as a routine report to the inspector in yours. That'll mean that several people are wondering about it already, and there'll be questions going on here about Sally and Catherine. The devil of it is that everybody's more suspicious than usual because of these rumours of large-scale trouble from the fringes. I'll see if I can find out anything tomorrow and let you know. But what's the best thing for us to do? Rosalind put in. Nothing at the moment, Michael advised. If we are right about the source, then you are in two groups. Sally and Catherine in one, you, David and Petra in the other. And the other three of us aren't involved at all. Don't do anything unusual, or you may cause them to pounce on suspicion. If it does come to an inquiry, we ought to be able to bluff it out by acting simple as we decided. But Petra's the weak spot. She's too young to understand. If they start on her and trick her and trap her, it might end up in sterilization and the fringes for all of us. That makes her the key point. They must not get hold of her. It's possible that there's no suspicion attached to her, but she was there, so she's liable to be suspected. If there's any sign of interest in her, it'll be better to cut your losses and get her away. If they do start on her, they'll have it out of her somehow. Very likely it'll all blow over. But just in case it does get sticky, David will have to be responsible. It'll be your job, David, to see that she isn't taken for questioning at any cost. If you have to kill someone to prevent it, then you must. They'd not think twice about killing us if they had the excuse. Don't forget, if they move at all, they'll be doing it to exterminate us, by the slow method, if not by the fast. If the worst comes to the worst, and you can't save Petra... It would be kinder to kill her than let her go to sterilization and banishment to the fringes. A lot more merciful for a child. You understand? Did the rest of you agree? Their agreements came in. When I thought of little Petra, mutilated and thrust naked into fringes country, to perish or survive as it should chance, I agreed too. Very well, Michael went on. Just to be on the safe side, then, it might be best if the four of you and Petra were to make your arrangements to run for it at a moment's notice, if it becomes necessary. He went on explaining in more detail. It's difficult to see what other course we could have taken. An overt move by any of us would at once have brought trouble on the rest. Our misfortune lay in our receiving the information regarding the inquiries when we did, and not two or three days earlier. Chapter 12 The discussion, and Michael's advice, 
made the threat of discovery seem both more real and more imminent than it had been when I talked to Uncle Axel earlier in the evening. Somehow it brought it home to me that one day we should find ourselves faced by the real thing, the alarm which wasn't simply going to work up and blow over, leaving us much as before. Michael, I knew, had been increasingly anxious during the last year or so, as if he had a feeling that time was running out, and now I caught some of that sensation too. I even went as far as making some preparations before I went to bed that night. At least I put a bow and a couple of dozen arrows handy, and found a sack into which I put several loaves and a cheese. And I decided that next day I would make up a pack of spare clothes and boots and other things that would be useful, and hide it in some dry, convenient place outside. Then we should need some clothing for Petra, and a bundle of blankets, and something to hold drinking water, and it would not do to forget a tinderbox. I was still listing the desirable equipment in my mind when I fell asleep. No more than three hours or so can have passed before I was awakened by the click of my latch. There was no moon, but there was starlight enough to show a small, white, nightgowned figure by the door. David, she said. Rosalind. But she did not need to tell me. Rosalind had already broken in urgently. David, she was telling me. We must get away at once, just as soon as you can. They've taken Sally and Catherine. Michael crowded in on her. Hurry up, both of you, while there's time. It was a deliberate surprise. If they do know much about us, they'll have tried to time it to send a party for you too before you could be warned. They were at Sally's and Catherine's almost simultaneously just over ten minutes ago. Get moving quick. Meet you below the mill. Hurry, Rosalind added. I told Petra in words. Get dressed as fast as you can overalls, and be very quiet. Very likely she had not understood the thought shapes in detail, but she had caught their urgency. She simply nodded and slipped back into the dark passage. I pulled on my clothes and rolled the bed blankets into a bundle. I groped about in the shadows till I found the bow and arrows and the bag of food and made for the door. Petra was almost dressed already. I grabbed some clothes from her cupboard and rolled them in the blankets. Don't put on your shoes yet, I whispered. Carry them and come tiptoe like a cat. Outside in the yard, I put down the bundle in the sack while we both got our shoes on. Petra started to speak, but I put my finger to my lips and gave her the thought shape of Sheba, the black mare. She nodded, and we tiptoed across the yard. I just had the stable door open when I caught a distant sound and paused to listen. Horses, whispered Petra. Horses it was several sets of hooves, and faintly the tinkle of bits. There was no time to find the saddle and bridle for Sheba. We brought her out on the halter and mounted from the block. With all I was carrying there was no room for Petra in front of me. She got up behind and hung on round my waist. Quietly we slipped out of the yard by the far end and started down the path to the river bank while the hoof-beats on the upper track drew close to the house. Are you away? I asked Rosalind, and let her know what was happening with us. I was away ten minutes ago. I had everything ready, she told me reprovingly. We've all been trying our damnedest to reach you. It was lucky Petra happened to wake up. Petra caught her own thought shape, and broke in excitedly to know what was happening. It was like a fountain of sparks. Gently, darling, much more gently, protested Rosalind. We'll tell you all about it soon. 
She paused a moment to get over the blinding effect. Sally? Catherine? She inquired. They responded together. We're being taken to the inspectors. We're all innocent and bewildered. Is that best? Michael and Rosalind agreed that it was. We think, Sally went on, that we ought to shut our minds to you. It'll make it easier for us to act as normals if we really don't know what's happening. So don't try to reach us, any of you. Very well. But we shall be open for you, Rosalind agreed. She diverted her thoughts to me. Come along, David. There are lights up at the farm now. It's all right, we're coming, I told her. It's going to take them some time in the dark to find which way we went anyhow. They'll know by the stable warmth that you can't have got far yet, she pointed out. I looked back. Up by the house I could see a light in a window and a lantern swinging in someone's hand. The sound of a man's voice calling came to us faintly. We had reached the riverbank now, and it was safe to urge Sheba to a trot. We kept that up for half a mile until we came to the ford, and then for another quarter mile until we were approaching the mill. It seemed prudent to walk her past there in case anyone were awake. Beyond the wall we heard a dog on the chain, but it did not bark. Presently I caught Rosalind's feeling of relief coming from somewhere a little ahead. We trotted again, and a few moments later I noticed a movement under the trees of the track. I turned the mare that way and found Rosalind waiting for us, and not only Rosalind, but her father's pair of great horses. The massive creatures towered above us, both saddled with large pannier baskets. Rosalind was standing in one of the baskets, her bow, strung and ready to hand, laid across it. I rode up close beneath her while she leaned out to see what I had brought. Hand me the blankets, she directed, reaching down. What's in the sack? I told her. Do you mean to say that's all you've brought? She said disapprovingly. There was some hurry, I pointed out. She arranged the blankets to pad the saddleboard between the panniers. I hoisted Petra until she could reach Rosalind's hands. With a heave from both of us, she scrambled up and perched herself on the blankets. We'd better keep together, Rosalind directed. I've left room for you in the other pannier. You can shoot left-handed from there. She flipped over a kind of miniature rope ladder so that it hung down the great horse's left shoulder. I slid off Sheba's back, turned her head for home, and gave her a smack on the flank to start her off. Then I scrambled up awkwardly to the other pannier. The moment my foot was clear of the mounting rings, Rosalind pulled them up and hitched them. She gave the reins a shake, and before I was well settled in the pannier, we were off, with the second great horse following on a lead. We trotted a while, and then left the track for a stream. Where that was joined by another, we branched off up the lesser. We left that, and picked our way across boggy ground to another stream. We held on along the bed of that for perhaps half a mile or more, and then turned off onto another stretch of uneven marshy ground, which soon became firmer, until presently the hooves were clinking among stones. We slowed still more while the horses picked a winding way amid rocks. I realised that Rosalind had put in some careful planning to hide our tracks. I must have projected the thought unwittingly, for she came in somewhat coldly. It's a pity you didn't do a little more thinking and a little less sleeping. I made a start, I protested. I was going to get everything fixed up today. It didn't seem all that urgent. And so when I tried to consult you about it, there you were, swinishly asleep. 
My mother and I spent two solid hours packing up these panniers and getting the saddles slung up, ready for an emergency, while all you did was go on sleeping. Your mother? I asked, startled. Does she know? She's sort of half-known. Guessed something for some time now. I don't know how much she's guessed. She never spoke about it at all. I think she felt that as long as she didn't have to admit it in words, it might be all right. When I told her this evening that I thought it very likely I'd have to go, she cried. But she wasn't really surprised. She didn't try to argue or dissuade me. I had a sort of feeling that she'd already resolved at the back of her mind that she'd have to help me one day, when the time came. And she did. I thought that over. I could not imagine my own mother doing such a thing for Petra's sake. And yet she had cried after my Aunt Harriet had been sent away. And Aunt Harriet had been more than ready to break the purity laws. So had Sophie's mother. It made one wonder how many mothers there might be who were turning a blind eye towards matters that did not actually infringe the definition of the true image, and perhaps to things that did infringe it, if the inspector could be dodged. I wondered, too, whether my mother would, in secret, be glad or sorry that I had taken Petra away. We went on by the erratic route that Rosalind had picked to hide the trail. There were more stony places and more streams, until finally we urged the horses up a steep bank and into the woods. Before long we encountered a trackway running southwest. We did not care to risk the spore of the great horses there, and so kept along parallel with it until the sky began to show grey. Then we turned deeper into the woods until we found a glade which offered grass for the horses. There we hobbled them and let them graze. After we had made a meal of bread and cheese, Rosalind said, Since you slept so well earlier on, you'd better take first watch. She and Petra settled themselves comfortably in blankets and soon dropped off. I sat with my strung bow across my knees and half a dozen arrows stuck handy in the ground beside me. There was nothing to be heard but the birds, occasionally a small animal moving, and the steady munchings of the great horses. The sun rose into the thinner branches and began to give more warmth. Every now and then I got up and prowled silently round the fringe of the glade, with an arrow ready knocked on string. I found nothing. But it helped to keep me awake. After a couple of hours of it, Michael came through. Where are you now? he inquired. I explained as well as I could. Where are you heading? he wanted to know. Southwest, I told him. We thought we'd move by night and lie up by day. He approved of that, but... Well, the devil of it is that with this fringy scare there'll be a lot of patrols about. I don't know that Rosalind was wise to take those great horses. If they're seen at all, word will go round like wildfire. Even a hoof mark will be enough. Ordinary horses have the speed of them for short bursts, I acknowledged, but they can't touch them for stamina. You may need that. Frankly, David, you're going to need your wits, too. There's hell to pay over this. They must have found out much more about you than we ever guessed, though they aren't on to Mark or Rachel or me yet. But it's got them very worried indeed. They're going to send posses after you. My idea is to volunteer for one of them right away. I'm going to plant a report of your having been seen making southeast. When that peters out, we'll have Mark start up another to take them northwest. If anyone does see you, stop him getting away with the news at all costs, but don't shoot. There's an order going out not to use guns except when necessary, and as signals, all gunshots to be investigated. 
That's all right. We haven't a gun, I told him. So much the better. You can't be tempted to use one, but they think you have. I had deliberately decided against taking a gun, partly on account of the noise, but mostly because they are slow to reload, heavy to carry, and useless if you run out of powder. Arrows haven't the range, but they are silent, and you can get a dozen and more of them off while a man is recharging a gun. Mark came in. I heard that. I'll have a northwest rumor ready for when it's needed. Good, but don't loose it till I tell you. Rosalind's asleep now, I suppose. Tell her to get in touch with me when she wakes, will you? I said I would, and everybody laid off projecting for a while. I went on keeping my watch for another couple of hours, and then woke Rosalind for her turn. Petra did not stir. I lay down beside her and was asleep in a minute or two. Perhaps I was sleeping lightly, or it may have been just coincidence that I woke up to catch an anguished thought from Rosalind. I've killed him, Michael. He's quite dead. Then she slid off into a panicky, chaotic thought shape. Michael came in, steady and reassuring. Don't be scared, Rosalind. You had to do it. This is a war between our kind and theirs. We didn't start it. We've just as much right to exist as they have. You mustn't be frightened, Rosalind, dear. You had to do it. What's happened? I asked, sitting up. They ignored me or were too much occupied to notice. I looked round the glade. Petra lay asleep still beside me. The great horses were cropping the grass undisturbed. Michael came in again. Hide him, Rosalind. Try to find a hollow and pile leaves over him. A pause. Then Rosalind, her panic conquered now, but with deep distress agreeing. I got up, picked up my bow, and walked across the glade in the direction I knew she must be. When I reached the edge of the trees, it occurred to me that I was leaving Petra unprotected, so I went no further. Presently, Rosalind appeared among the bushes. She was walking slowly, cleaning an arrow on a handful of leaves as she came. What happened? I repeated. But she seemed to have lost control over her thought shapes again. They were muddled and distorted by her emotions. When she got nearer, she used words instead. It was a man. He had found the trail of the horses. I saw him following them. Michael said, Oh, I didn't want to do it, David, but what else could I do? Her eyes were full of tears. I put my arms round her and let her cry on my shoulder. There was little I could do to comfort her, nothing but assure her, as Michael had, that what she had done had been absolutely necessary. After a little time we walked slowly back. She sat down beside the still-sleeping Petra. It occurred to me to ask, What about his horse, Rosalind? Did that get away? She shook her head. I don't know. I suppose he must have had one, but he was following our tracks on foot when I saw him. I thought it better to retrace our course and find out whether he had left a horse tethered anywhere along it. I went back half a mile, but found no horse, nor was there any trace of recent hoof marks other than those of the great horses. When I got back, Petra was awake and chattering to Rosalind. The day wore on. Nothing more came to us from Michael or the rest. In spite of what had happened, it seemed better to stay where we were than to move by daylight with the risk of being seen, so we waited. Then, in the afternoon, something did come, suddenly. It was not a thought shape. 
It had no real form. It was sheer distress, like a cry of agony. Petra gasped and threw herself whimpering into Rosalind's arms. The impact was so sharp that it hurt. Rosalind and I stared at one another, wide-eyed. My hands shook. Yet the shock was so formless that we could not tell which of the others it came from. Then there was a jumble of pain and shame, overridden with hopeless desolation, and among it characteristic glimpses of forms that we knew without doubt were Catherine's. Rosalind put her hand on mine and held it tightly. We endured while the sharpness dimmed and the pressure ebbed away. Presently came Sally, brokenly, in waves of love and sympathy to Catherine, then in anguish to the rest of us. They've broken Catherine. They've broken her. Oh, Catherine, dear, you mustn't blame her, any of you. Please, please don't blame her. They're torturing her. It might have been any of us. She's all clouded now. She can't hear us. Oh, Catherine, darling. Her thoughts dissolved into shapeless distress. Then there was Michael, unsteadily at first, but hardening into as rigid a form as I had ever received. It is war. Some day I'll kill them for what they've done to Catherine. After that, there was nothing for an hour or more. We did our rather unconvincing best to soothe and reassure Petra. She understood little of what had passed between us, but she had caught the intensity, and that had been enough to frighten her. Then there was Sally again, dully, miserably forcing herself to it. Catherine has admitted it, confessed. I have confirmed it. They would have forced me to it, too, in the end. I... She hesitated, wavering. I couldn't face it. Not the hot irons, not for nothing. When she had told them, I couldn't... Forgive me, all of you. Forgive us both. She broke off again. Michael came in unsteadily, anxiously, too. Sally, dear, of course we're not blaming you. Either of you. We understand. But we must know what you've told them. How much do they know? About thought shapes and David and Rosalind. They were nearly sure about them, but they wanted it confirmed. Petra, too? Yes. Oh. There was an unshaped surge of remorse. We had to. Poor little Petra. But they knew, really. It was the only reason that David and Rosalind would have taken her with them. No lie would cover it. Anyone else? No. We've told them that there isn't anyone else. I think they believe it. They're still asking questions, trying to understand more about it. They want to know how we make thought shapes and what the range is. I'm telling them lies. Not more than five miles, I'm saying, and pretending it's not at all easy to understand thought shapes even that far away. Catherine's barely conscious. She can't send to you. But they keep on asking us both questions on and on. If you could see what they've done to her. Oh, Catherine, darling. Her feet. Michael. Oh, her poor, poor feet. Sally's patterns clouded in anguish and then faded away. Nobody else came in. I think we were all too deeply hurt and shocked. Words have to be chosen and then interpreted, but thought shapes you feel inside you. The sun was low, 
and we were beginning to pack up when Michael made contact again. Listen to me, he told us. They're taking this very seriously indeed. They're badly alarmed over us. Usually, if a deviation gets clear of a district, they let him go. Nobody can settle anywhere without proofs of identity or a very thorough examination by the local inspector, so he's pretty well bound to end up in the fringes anyway. But what's got them so agitated about us is that nothing shows. We've been living among them for nearly twenty years, and they didn't suspect it. We could pass for normal anywhere. So a proclamation has been posted describing the three of you and officially classifying you as deviants. That means that you are non-human and therefore not entitled to any of the rights or protections of human society. Anyone who assists you in any way is committing a criminal act, and anyone concealing knowledge of your whereabouts is also liable to punishment. In effect, it makes you outlaws. Anyone may shoot you on sight without penalty. There is a small reward if your deaths are reported and confirmed, but there is a very much larger reward for you if you are taken alive. There was a pause while we took that in. I don't understand," said Rosalind. "If we were to promise to go away and stay away, they're afraid of us. They want to capture you and learn more about us. That's why there's a large reward." It isn't just a question of the true image, though that's the way they're making it appear. What they've seen is that we could be a real danger to them. Imagine if there were a lot more of us than there are, able to think together and plan and coordinate without all their machinery of words and messages. We could outwit them all the time. They find that a very unpleasant thought. So we are to be stamped out before there can be any more of us. They see it as a matter of survival, and they may be right, you know. Are they going to kill Sally and Catherine? That was an incautious question which slipped from Rosalind. We waited for a response from either of the two girls. There was none. We could not tell what that meant. They might simply have closed their minds again, or be sleeping from exhaustion, or perhaps dead already. Michael thought not. There is little reason for that when they have them safely in their hands. It would very likely raise a lot of ill feeling. To declare a newborn baby as non-human on physical defects is one thing, but this is a lot more delicate. It isn't going to be easy for people who have known them for years to accept the non-human verdict at all. If they were to be killed, it would make a lot of people feel uneasy and uncertain about the authorities, much the same way as a retrospective law does. But we can be killed quite safely, Rosalind commented with some bitterness. You aren't already captives, and you aren't among people who know you. To strangers, you are just non-humans on the run. There was not much one could say to that. Michael asked, "Which way are you travelling tonight?" Still southwest, I told him. We had thought of trying to find some place to stop in wild country, but now that any hunter is licensed to shoot us, we shall have to go on into the fringes. I think that'd be best. If you can find a place to hide up there for a bit, we'll see if we can't fake your deaths. I'll try to think of some way. Tomorrow I shall be with a search party that's going southeast. I'll let you know what it's doing. Meanwhile, if you run into anyone, make sure that you shoot first. On that we broke off. Rosalind finished packing up, and we arranged the gear to make the panniers more comfortable than they had been the previous night. Then we climbed up, I on the left again. Petra and Rosalind together in the right-hand basket this time.
Rosalind reached back to give a thump on the huge flank, and we moved ponderously forward once more. Petra, who had been unusually subdued during the packing up, burst into tears and radiated distress. She did not, it emerged from her snuffles, want to go to the fringes. Her mind was sorely troubled by thoughts of old Maggie and Harry Jack and his family, and the other ominous nursery threat characters said to lurk in those regions. It would have been easier to pacify her had we not ourselves suffered from quite a residue of childhood apprehensions, or had we been able to advance some real idea of the region to set against its morbid reputation. As it was, we, like most people, knew too little of it to be convincing, and had to go on suffering her distress again. Admittedly, it was less intense than it had been on former occasions, and experience did now enable us to put up more of a barrier against it. Nevertheless, the effect was wearing. Fully half an hour passed before Rosalind succeeded in soothing away the obliterating hullabaloo. When she had, the others came in anxiously, Michael inquiring with irritation, What was it this time? We explained. Michael dropped his irritability and turned his attention to Petra herself. He began telling her in slow, clear thought forms how the fringes weren't really the bogey place that people pretended. Most of the men and women who lived there were just unfortunate and unhappy. They had been taken away from their homes, often when they were babies, or some of them who were older had had to run away from their homes simply because they didn't look like other people, and they had to live in the fringes because there was nowhere else people would leave them alone. Some of them did look very queer and funny indeed, but they couldn't help that. It was a thing to be sorry, not frightened about. If we had happened to have extra fingers or ears by mistake, we should have been sent to the fringes, although we should be just the same people inside as we were now. What people looked like didn't really matter a great deal. One could soon get used to it, and... But at about this stage, Petra interrupted him. Who is the other one? she inquired. What other one? What do you mean? he asked her. There's somebody else who's making think pictures all mixed up with yours, she told him. There was a pause. I opened right out, but could not detect any thought shapes at all. Then, I get nothing, came from Michael, and Mark, and Rachel, too. It must be... There was an impetuous strong sign from Petra. In words, it would have been an impatient shut-up. We subsided and waited. I glanced over at the other pannier. Rosalind had one arm round Petra, and was looking down at her attentively. Petra herself had her eyes shut, as though all her attention were on listening. Presently she relaxed a little. What is it? Rosalind asked her. Petra opened her eyes. Her reply was puzzled, and not very clearly shaped. Somebody's asking questions. She's a long way, a very long, long way away, I think. She says she's had my afraid thoughts before. She wants to know who I am and where I am. Shall I tell her? There was a moment's caution, then Michael inquiring with a touch of excitement whether we approved. We did. All right, Petra, go ahead and tell her, he agreed. I shall have to be very loud. She's such a long way away. Petra warned us. It was as well she did. 
If she had let it rip while our minds were wide open, she'd have blistered them. I closed mine and tried to concentrate my attention on the way ahead of us. It helped, but it was by no means a thorough defence. The shapes were simple, as one would expect of Petra's age, but they still reached me with a violence and brilliance which dazzled and deafened me. There was the equivalent of a few from Michael when it let up, closely followed by the repeated equivalent of shut up from Petra. A pause, and then another briefly blinding interlude. When that subsided... Where is she? inquired Michael. Over there, Petra told him. Oh, for goodness sake, she's pointing southwest, I explained. Did you ask her the name of the place, darling? Rosalind inquired. Yes, but it didn't mean anything, except that there were two parts of it and a lot of water, Petra told her, in words and obscurely. She doesn't understand where I am, either. Rosalind suggested, tell her to spell it out in letter shapes. But I can't read letters, Petra objected tearfully. Oh, dear, that's awkward, Rosalind admitted. But at least we can send. I'll give you the letter shapes, one by one, and you can think them on to her. How about that? Petra agreed doubtfully to try. Good, said Rosalind. Look out, everybody. Here we go again. She pictured an L. Petra relayed it with devastating force. Rosalind followed up with an A and so on until the word was complete. Petra told us, She understands, but she doesn't know where Labrador is. She says she'll try to find out. She wants to send us her letter shapes, but I said it's no good. But it is, darling. You get them from her, then you show them to us, only gently so that we can read them. Presently we got the first one. It was Zed. We were disappointed. What on earth's that? Everyone inquired at once. She's got it back to front. It must be S, Michael decided. It's not S, it's Zed, Petra insisted tearfully. Never mind them, just go on, Rosalind told her. The rest of the word built up. Well, the others are proper letters, Michael admitted. Sealand, it must be. Not S, it's Zed, repeated Petra obstinately. But, darling, Zed doesn't mean anything. Now, Sealand obviously means a land in the sea. If that helps, I said doubtfully. According to my Uncle Axel, there's a lot more sea than anyone would think possible. At that point, everything was blotted out by Petra conversing indignantly with the unknown. She finished to announce triumphantly, It is Zed. She says it's different from S, like the noise a bee makes. All right, Michael told her pacifically but ask her if there is a lot of sea. Petra came back shortly with, Yes, there are two parts of it, with lots of sea all round. From where she is, you can see the sun shining on it for miles and miles, and it's all blue. In the middle of the night, said Michael, she's crazy. But it isn't night where she is. She showed me, Petra said. It's a place with lots and lots of houses, different from Wacknock houses, and much, much bigger. And there are funny carts without horses running along the roads, and things in the air with whizzing things on top of them. I was jolted to recognise the picture from the childhood dreams that I had almost forgotten. I broke in, repeating it more clearly than Petra had shown it. A fish-shaped thing, all white and shiny. Yes, like that, Petra agreed. There's something very queer about this altogether, Michael put in. David, how on earth did you know? I cut him short. Let Petra get all she can now, I suggested. We can sort it out later. 
So again we did our best to put up a barrier between ourselves and the apparently one-sided exchange that Petra was conducting in an excited fortissimo. We made slow progress through the forest. We were anxious not to leave traces on the rides and tracks, so that the going was poor. As well as keeping our bows ready for use, we had to be alert enough not to have them swept out of our hands and to crouch low beneath overhanging branches. The risk of meeting men was not great, but there was a chance encountering of some hunting beast. Luckily, when we did hear one, it was invariably in a hurry to get away. Possibly the bulk of the great horses was discouraging. If so, it was at least one advantage we could set against the distinctive spore behind us. The summer nights are not long in those parts. We kept on plodding until there were signs of dawn, and then found another glade to rest in. There would have been too much risk in unsaddling. The heavy pack-saddles and panniers would have had to be hoisted off by a pulley on a branch, and that would deprive us of any chance of a quick getaway. We simply had to hobble the horses as on the previous day. While we ate our food, I talked to Petra about the things her friend had shown her. The more she told me, the more excited I became. Almost everything fitted in with the dreams I had had as a small boy. It was like a sudden inspiration to know that the place must really exist, that I had not simply been dreaming of the ways of the old people, but that it really was in being now, somewhere in the world. However, Petra was tired, so that I did not question her as much as I would have liked to just then, but let her and Rosalind get to sleep. Just after sunrise, Michael came through in some agitation. They've picked up your trail, David. That man Rosalind shot. His dog found him, and they came across the great horse tracks. Our lot is turning back to the southwest to join in the hunt. You'd better push on. Where are you now? All I could tell him was that we had calculated we must be within a few miles of wild country by this time. Then get moving, he told me. The longer you delay, the more time they'll have to get a party ahead to cut you off. It sounded good advice. I woke Rosalind and explained. Ten minutes later we were on our way again, with Petra still more than half asleep. With speed, now more important than concealment, we kept on the first southward track that we found and urged the horses to a ponderous trot. The way wound somewhat with the lie of the land, but its general direction was right. We followed it for fully ten miles without trouble of any kind. But then... As we rounded a corner, we came face to face with a horseman trotting towards us barely fifty yards ahead. Chapter 13 The man cannot have had a moment's doubt who we were, for even as he saw us he dropped his reins and snatched his bow from his shoulder. Before he had a shaft on the string, we had loosed at him. The motion of the great horse was unfamiliar, and we both shot wide. He did better. His arrow passed between us, skinning our horse's head. Again I missed, but Rosalind's second shot took his horse in the chest. It reared, almost unseating him, then turned and started to bolt away ahead of us. I sent another arrow after it and took it in the buttock. It leapt sideways, catapulting the man into the bushes, and then sped off down the track as hard as it could go. We passed the thrown man without checking. He cringed aside as the huge hoofs clumped by within a couple of feet of his head. 
but the next turn we looked back to see him sitting up, feeling his bruises. The least satisfactory part of the incident was that there was now a wounded, riderless horse spreading an alarm ahead of us. A couple of miles further on, the stretch of forest came to an abrupt end, and we found ourselves looking across a narrow, cultivated valley. There was about a mile and a half of open country before the trees began again on the far side. Most of the land was pasture, with sheep and cattle behind rail and post fences. One of the few arable fields was immediately to our left. The young crop there looked as if it might be oats, but it deviated to an extent which would have caused it to be burnt long ago at home. The sight of it encouraged us, for it could only mean that we had reached almost a wild country where stock could not be kept pure. The track led, at a gentle slope, down to a farm, which was little better than a cluster of huts and sheds. In the open space among them, which served for a yard, we could see four or five women and a couple of men gathered round a horse. They were examining it, and we had little doubt what horse it was. Evidently it had only just arrived, and they were still arguing about it. We decided to go on rather than give them time to arm and come in search of us. So absorbed were they in the inspection of the horse that we had covered half the distance from the trees before any of them noticed us. Then one glanced up, and the rest, too, turned to stare. They can never have seen a great horse before, and the sight of two of them bearing down upon them at a canter with a thunderous rumble of horse-beats struck them momentarily rigid with astonishment. It was the horse in their midst that broke up the tableau. It reared, whinnied, and made off, scattering them. There was no need to shoot. The whole group scuttled for the shelter of various doorways, and we pounded through their yard unmolested. The track bore off to the left, but Rosalind held the great horse on a straight line ahead towards the next stretch of forest. The rails flew aside like twigs, and we kept going at a lumbering canter across the fields, leaving a trail of broken fences behind us. At the edge of the trees I looked back. The people at the farm had emerged from shelter and stood gesticulating and staring after us. Three or four miles further on we came out into more open country, but not like any region we had seen before. It was dotted with bushes and brakes and thickets. Most of the grass was coarse and large-leaved. In some places it was monstrous, growing into giant tufts where the sharp-edged blade stood eight or ten feet high. We wound our way among them, keeping generally southwest for another couple of hours. Then we pushed into a copse of queer but fair-sized trees. It offered a good hiding place, and inside were several open spaces where there grew a more ordinary kind of grass, which looked as if it might make suitable fodder. We decided to rest a while there and sleep. I hobbled the horses while Rosalind unrolled the blankets, and presently we were eating hungrily. It was pleasantly peaceful until Petra put one of her blinding communications so abruptly that I bit my tongue. Rosalind screwed up her eyes and put her hand to her head. "'For heaven's sake, child,' she protested. "'Sorry, I forgot,' said Petra perfunctorily. She sat with her head a little on one side for a minute. Then she told us, "'She wants to talk to one of you. She says, will you all try to hear her while she thinks her loudest?' "'All right,' we agreed, "'but you keep quiet or you'll blind us.' I tried my very hardest, straining sensitivity to its utmost, but there was nothing. 
or as near nothing as the shimmer of a heat haze. We relaxed again. No good, I said. You'll have to tell her we can't reach her, Petra. Look out, everyone. We did our best to damp out the exchange that followed. Then Petra brought down the force of her thoughts below the dazzle level and started to relay those she was receiving. They had to be in very simple form so that she could copy them even when she did not understand them. In consequence, they reached us rather like baby talk and with many repeats to make sure that we grasped them. It's scarcely possible to give any idea in words of the way it came across, but it was the overall impression that mattered, and that reached us clearly enough. The urgent emphasis was on importance, the importance not of us, but of Petra. At all costs she must be protected. Such a power of projection as she had was unheard of without special training. She was a discovery of the utmost importance. Help was already on the way, but until it could reach us, we must play for time and safety. Petra's safety, it seemed, not our own, at all costs. There was quite a lot more that was less clear, muddled up with it, but that main point was quite unmistakable. Did you get it? I asked of the others when it had finished. They had. Michael responded. This is very confusing. There is no doubt that Petra's power of projection is remarkable compared with ours anyway, but what she seemed to me to be putting across was that she was particularly surprised to find it among primitive people. Did you notice that? It looked almost as if she were meaning us. She was, confirmed Rosalind, not a shadow of doubt about it. Oh, there must be some misunderstanding, I put in. Probably Petra somehow gave her the impression we were fringes people. As for... I was suddenly blotted out for a moment by Petra's indignant denial. I did my best to disregard it and went on. As for help, there must be a misunderstanding there too. She's somewhere southwest, and everybody knows there are miles and miles of badlands that way. Even if they do come to an end and she's on the other side of them, how can she possibly help? Rosalind refused to argue about that. Let's wait and find out, she suggested. Just now, all I want is sleep. I felt the same way, and since Petra had slept most of the time in the pannier, we told her to keep a sharp lookout and wake us at once if she heard or saw anything suspicious. Both Rosalind and I fell asleep almost before we laid our heads down. I awoke, with Petra shaking my shoulder, and saw that the sun was not far off setting. Michael, she explained. I cleared my mind for him. They've picked up your trail again, a small farm on the edge of wild country. You galloped through it, remember? I did. He went on. There's a party converging there now. They'll start to follow your tracks as soon as it's light. Better get moving soon. I don't know how it is in front of you, but there may be some men cutting across from the west to head you off. If there are, my bet is that they'll keep in smallish groups for the night. They can't risk a cordon of single sentries because there are known to be fringes people scouting around. So, with luck, you should be able to sneak through. All right, I agreed wearily. Then a question I had meant to ask before occurred to me. What's happened to Sally and Catherine? I don't know. No answer. The range is getting rather long now. Does anyone know? Rachel came in, made faint by the distance. Catherine was unconscious. There's been nothing understandable since then. Mark and I are afraid. She faded, 
in a foggy reluctance to continue. Go on, Michael told her. Well, Catherine's been unconscious so long. We're wondering if she's dead. And Sally? This time there was even more reluctance. We think... We're afraid something queer must have happened to her mind. There have been just one or two little jumbles from her. Very weak, not sensible at all. So we're afraid... She faded away in great unhappiness. There was a pause before Michael started with hard, harsh shapes. You understand what that means, David. They are scared of us, ready to break us down in an attempt to find out more about us, once they can catch us. You mustn't let them get hold of Rosalind or Petra. Far better to kill them yourself than let that happen to them. Do you understand? I looked at Rosalind lying asleep beside me, the red of the sunset glistening on her hair, and I thought of the anguish we had felt from Catherine. The possibility of her and Petra suffering that made me shudder. Yes, I told him, and the others. Yes, I understand. I felt their sympathy and encouragement for a while. Then there was nothing. Petra was looking at me, more puzzled than alarmed. She asked earnestly, in words, Why did he say you must kill Rosalind and me? I've pulled myself together. That was only if they catch us. I told her, trying to make it sound as if it were the sensible and usual course in such circumstances. She considered the prospect judicially, then. Why? she asked. Well, I tried. You see, we're different from them because they can't make thought shapes. And when people are different, ordinary people are afraid of them. Why should they be afraid of us? We aren't hurting them, she broke in. I'm not sure that I know why, I told her. But they are. It's a feel thing, not a think thing. And the more stupid they are, the more like everyone else they think everyone ought to be. And once they get afraid, they become cruel and want to hurt people who are different. Why? inquired Petra. They just do. And they'd hurt us very much if they could catch us. I don't see why, Petra insisted. It's the way things work. It's complicated and rather nasty, I told her. You'll understand better when you're older. But the thing is, we don't want you and Rosalind to be hurt. You remember when you spilt the boiling water on your foot? Well, it'd be much worse than that. Being dead's a lot better. It's sort of like being so much asleep that they can't get at you to hurt you at all. I looked down at Rosalind, at the gentle rise and fall of her breasts as she slept. There was a vagrant wisp of hair on her cheek. I brushed it away gently and kissed her without waking her. Presently, Petra began. David, when you kill me and Rosalind, I put an arm round her. Hush, darling. It isn't going to happen, because we aren't going to let them catch us. Now, let's wake her up, but we won't tell her about this. She might be worried, so we'll just keep it to ourselves for a secret, shall we? All right. Petra agreed. She tugged gently at Rosalind's hair. We decided to eat again, and then push on when it was a little darker, so that there would be stars to steer by. Petra was unwontedly silent over the meal. 
At first I thought she was brooding upon our recent conversation, but I was wrong, it appeared. After a time she emerged from her contemplations to say conversationally, Sealand must be a funny place. Everybody there can make think pictures. Well, nearly everybody. And nobody wants to hurt anybody for doing it. Oh, you've been chatting while we were asleep, have you? remarked Rosalind. I must say that makes it a lot more comfortable for us. Petra ignored that. She went on. They aren't all of them very good at it, though. Most of them are more like you and David, she told us kindly. But she's much better at it than most of them. And she's got two babies, and she thinks they will be good at it, only they're too little yet. But she doesn't think they'll be as good at it as me. She says I can make stronger think pictures than anybody at all, she concluded complacently. That doesn't surprise me one bit, Rosalind told her. What you want to learn next is to make good think pictures instead of just noisy ones, she added deflatingly. Petra remained unabashed. She says I'll get better still if I work at it, and then when I grow up I must have babies who can make strong think pictures too. Oh, you must, must you, said Rosalind. Why? My impression of think pictures up to now is that chiefly they bring trouble. Not in Sealand, Petra shook her head. She says that everybody there wants to make them, and people who can't do it much work hard to get better at it. We pondered that. I recalled Uncle Axel's tales about places beyond the black coasts where the deviations thought that they were the true image and anything else was a mutant. She says, Petra amplified, that people who can only talk with words have something missing. She says we ought to be sorry for them because however old they grow, they'll never be able to understand one another much better. They'll have to be one at a times always, never think togethers. I can't say I feel very sorry for them at present, I remarked. Well, she says we ought to because they have to live very dull, stupid lives compared with think-picture people, Petra said somewhat sententiously. We let her prattle on. It was difficult to make sense of a lot of the things she said, and possibly she had not got them right anyway. But the one thing that did stand out clearly was that these Sealanders, whoever and wherever they were, thought no small beans of themselves. It began to seem more than likely that Rosalind had been right when she had taken primitive to refer to ordinary Labrador people. End of Disc 4